Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Morning and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you. Good to have you with us, especially as we get into uh, Christmas week. And glad that you made time to be with us this morning. My name is Jonathan Mosier. Uh, it's my privilege to open the Word with you and for you today. And so, if you're not already there in your Bibles, if you turn to Isaiah chapter nine, Isaiah chapter nine, we're continuing on in this series uh, where we're discussing the names given to the Messiah, the titles that are to, that are going to describe the Son whom God would give to govern over the world. And so if you've been with us the last three weeks, we've talked through those wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and this week, perhaps the most familiar title, certainly the most marketable title, Prince of Peace. And certainly, at this time of year, we see our need for peace at Christmas. I mean, Christmas is supposed to be, in the words of one of my favorite Christmas tunes, the most wonderful time of the year, the Andy Williams version, in case you were wondering, the particulars. (laughs) around that. But for many of us, it's the, most, uh, it's the most painful time of year. And some of you have, um, have experienced this in funny ways, and some of you have experienced it in very real ways. So you may have already have had your Christmas gathering where you realize maybe for the very first time just how broken and dysfunctional your family is. This is the time of year where we interact with people uh, who we may not have option to interact with or not. And so you may have encountered that. But for others, in a very real way, it is a painful, a painful season a season of conflict, a season of heartbreak. I mean, for some of you, this may be the first year that you've celebrated Christmas without someone that you deeply loved. Or maybe, maybe that, that season has long since passed, but maybe it's the, the yearly reminder of that relationship that you no longer have. And for some of you going through difficult marital relationships, maybe this is the year where you're trying to figure out for the first time how you're going to shuffle kids back and forth to an ex-husband or an ex-wife. Maybe that's a very new and real pain for you. For others of you, maybe this this time of year reminds you of conflict and heartbreak and difficulty because you're afraid this will be your last Christmas. Maybe you received a difficult diagnosis or maybe somebody that you loved received a difficult diagnosis and you're encountering them again for the first time since they've received that news. For some of you, you've lost a job or you've got a a child who won't call you on Christmas. You've got a a son or a daughter who finds themselves in a difficult season and relationally there's all kinds of brokenness. Maybe this is the time of year where, where you remember family who's going through hardship. You've got people in rehab. You've got people in difficult positions of life. But Christmas, while it's beautiful and wonderful and reminds us of family and reminds us of what we've been given, it is also a season that reveals our deepest frustrations and fears, in the words of one author. Our most sincere sadness and suspicions, our brokenness and our bitterness. 
And even if you haven't personally experienced it, you see it all around us. I mean, for me, I work um, in a drug rehab program in Milwaukee as my full-time job. And so I was talking to uh, one of the gentlemen that I have the privilege of working um, with. I was talking to him this week about Christmas and, and what his interactions with his family are going, to, are going to look like. And what he said is he said, Christmas is such a difficult time because it's the time when no one wants to be alone. But for those who've had that brokenness of relationship, you have no one necessarily to come around you. And so for him, far from being a time of joy and happiness, and in the words of this title, far from this being a season of peace, it's just a reminder of what he's lost. And all of this discussion isn't even taking taking into account political strife and military conflicts and religious disputes all around the world. See, Christmas expresses our desperation. And if you were with us last week, we talked about where that desperation and where that brokenness actually began. Because what we said is that it all traces back to the Garden of Eden. And so if you remember, uh, as we were discussing last week, we talked about the idea that God created the world in perfect harmony, in perfect unity. The, the, the biblical word for it is the word shalom. I mean, if you know that word in a modern context, you probably know that the word shalom means peace, but it means something far deeper and far greater than just simple peace. It's something far deeper than just the absence of conflict. When we use the word shalom in a biblical sense, when we talk about biblical peace, what we're talking about is that God, in his intentionality and in his design for the world that he created, created everything to function in perfect harmony and in perfect unity, that all of these pieces work together perfectly to form a fabric of creation. And you see that picture in the Garden of Eden where all of creation functions perfectly, where all of the created animals and all of the vegetation and humanity live together in perfect harmony and there's also that perfect vertical harmony with God himself. Imagine a relationship, a marital relationship in this case, between Adam and Eve that is devoid of conflict and far more than just being devoid of conflict is fully and perfectly expressed in that marriage. Imagine what that would be like. But what we understand is that in Genesis 3, as sin enters into the world, the fabric of shalom, God's perfect peace and unity, was torn apart. And for the first time, there was enmity, strife, conflict between God and man. And that conflict affected everything. It affected all of our relationships, not only with God, but with one another. It affects our identity, the way that we see ourselves, the way that we view ourselves, the way that we look for satisfaction and fulfillment and joy and happiness. It, it, it impacts uh, our physical bodies as well as our psyches and our emotions. It, it, it's the thing that leads to pain and death. And so what you find, beginning in the Garden of Eden and continuing today, is that, the, that humanity is stumbling in brokenness and darkness to to live life without God. And when we look around us, what we see, without any shadow of a doubt, is that life is not what it was intended to be. And so whether it's the news from a doctor that we didn't expect, or the family gatherings that are awkward and difficult, whether it's the mundane or the most serious 
the most serious picture you can imagine in your life. We see the brokenness that sin created. And Isaiah, in chapter 9 of this passage, is writing to a people that are just like us. A people stumbling in the darkness, trying to find light. A people stumbling through conflict, trying to find peace. And we see that particularly in verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah chapter 9, which we haven't spent a, lot of, spent a lot of time reading, but you can read it on your own. And what you find is that in verses 4 through 5, the Israelite people were suffering under the burden of oppression as a result of a war. And imagine all of the, imagine all of the brokenness and all of the pain that was associated with that oppression Not only the difficulty of an invading force dominating the people, but all the after effects of war itself. Husbands and sons who did not return home. Wives and mothers that were left without care and provision. A people that were broken and stumbling. And as you read And Isaiah chapter 8, as the picture is more fully explained as to what Isaiah is speaking to um, in this passage, you you find that there are two particular regions that are mentioned, one called Naphtali and one called Zebulun. These are regions of Israel that had undergone the conflict and the war uh, of surrounding nations, and they had now been captured by Assyria. Conflict is on the rise. The picture is getting darker for these broken and hurting people. And the Israelites in Isaiah chapter 8 look to the exact same sort of things that we look to 3,000 years later for the hope of peace. In Isaiah chapter 8, God is speaking to his people and he's telling them, you're looking for peace in all the wrong places because what they were trying to do was establish treaties with Assyria and the surrounding nations. They were looking to politics and they were looking to government and they were looking to some sort of outside intervention for their peace and for their happiness, something that they could create, that they could make happen, that they could manipulate. And God says, listen, you're my people and you're my covenant people and I've promised to take care of you and yet you will not look to me for the peace that only I can provide. You're looking to foreign alliances and government treaties and politics to provide the safety and the security and the hope that only I can provide. And so God in his generosity sends prophets to the people. And what we find Isaiah reminding the people of Israel is that their biggest problem was not their political environment or the pain of their circumstances, but the hopelessness that comes with walking away from him. That as we doubt and as we reject and as we run from God, the conflict within us is amplified. But the beautiful reminder that we find in Isaiah chapter 9 is that even in the midst of their rebellion against God and even in the midst of the Israelites running to other means to try to find security and salvation and hope and peace, even in the middle of all that, God in his goodness and in his grace is not going to leave them in their misery to suffer the results of their decision. But he has already planned and is beginning to execute the means of providing their salvation. See, what Isaiah introduces us to in Isaiah chapter 9 is hope. And that word hope in our modern context is given very short shrift. I mean, we think about it, we think about it in very simplistic terms. I hope that Christmas goes well this year. I hope that I get the gifts that I asked for if you're younger in this room or perhaps older. 
It's a mere expression of desire. But when we find the biblical definition of hope, it's not this optimistic wishfulness. It is confident certainty. That not only do we have hope for the future, but Isaiah is going to say that, that through this Messiah, we are going to be introduced to the means of hope and hopeful living in this life. Not just a future hope, but a hope for right now, a hope that changes everything. And this is the wonder of what faith in Christ is, that God doesn't expect us to live as if we're pretending that everything is okay God is not asking us to pretend that life is great. God is not asking us to live as though we haven't faced difficulty and aren't experiencing pain in our lives. He is not calling us to be naive, nor is he calling us to be fatalists. But we are given the means to live in hope, even as we encounter the brokenness of this world. And what Isaiah is going to say is that the hope that God offers isn't in treaties or social programs or politics or alliances. It's not in human relationships or self-help or self-expression. Because a world that is broken can never provide the solution to its own brokenness. Instead, the hope that Isaiah introduces us to is in a person. And what Isaiah is going to say is that we needed help from the outside. We needed a rescue. We needed the Prince of Peace. Because lasting hope could only come from one who had ultimate power and perfect motives. And that is what we find in the Prince of Peace. I heard one commentator say it this way. He referred to the Prince of Peace as the administrator of Shalom. The one who has the authority to distribute peace and wholeness on a cosmic scale. And so when we hear that word prince, we need to stop and think about what it means. Because why in the world, of all the titles that could have been given to the one who is going to bring peace, does Isaiah choose the title prince? And the whole reason he does that is to indicate that a prince is one who holds the authority to effect his change. See, part of the reason that nothing else can provide peace in this life outside of Jesus Christ uh, is that we are looking to things that are inherently broken to provide us peace. So we're looking to other people and to relationships and to family and to jobs and to finances and to, uh, to, to, to financial security. We're looking to things that we can somehow control in this life to provide us peace. But the problem is every one of those things is inherently broken in this world. And in doing so, what we are ultimately determining is that, no, God, I don't need your help, and I don't need your influence, and I don't need a relationship with you in order to provide peace. Given the right circumstances, given the right control, and given the right authority, I can do this on my own. And what we do inherently, whether or not we're cognizant of it, is in that moment we remove the Prince of Peace from our life and we put ourselves on the throne. We have determined that we can control our own circumstances, our own outcomes, and our own ultimate peace and happiness. If this situation hadn't occurred, if this person was still in my life, if this relationship was still whole, if these things were in place, then I would be happy. And we've told Christ in no uncertain terms, I do not need you. See, our own pursuits of peace begin from a treasonous place. They begin from a presumption that is inherently flawed. But when Isaiah calls the Messiah Prince, 
he is declaring that the responsibility and the authority for change belongs exclusively to Christ. And not only does he have the authority and not only does he have the power as we've talked about over the last several weeks, but he alone has the perfect motivation. See, in our world, in government and in politics, in relationships nation to nation, we presume the best intent of people and we ought to presume and hope for peace in those circumstances, don't get me wrong, but the problem is that inherently we're dealing with people and nations that are broken, where our motivations are not always right and they're not always pure and they're not always trustworthy, but I want you to think about the motivation of the Prince of Peace. What is Christ's motivation in bringing peace? What is his motivation in using his authority and his power? And to get a picture of this, I want us to stop and think about the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, you have Jesus expressing to humanity the sort of kingdom that he wants to bring, the kind of change that he's going to introduce to the world, the sort of redemption and correction and restoration that he's going to bring to all things, not just our relationship personally with God the Father, but our relationship uh, as a church, as a people to God, and one to another, and the brokenness within this world itself. And imagine being there as you're hearing Jesus work through the Sermon on the Mount, explaining all of these things he's going to usher in and imagine you're hearing it for the first time as a Jew. A people who had a long history of having been oppressed, of heartbreak, of difficulty, of pain, of suffering. Who had read the promises of Isaiah and knew about the coming of the Messiah. They knew about this one who was going to usher in peace And as they're hearing Jesus preach, their hearts are stirred and wrapped, enraptured and motivated by the sorts of things that he's saying because they had seen all kinds of self-proclaimed saviors and victors before Jesus. They'd seen political zealots and they'd seen military heroes and they'd heard the, the proclamations of religious gurus and imposters. But then Jesus comes. And far from simple words or promises, or campaign pledges, they see this man performing miracles. There's this man who restores sight to the blind, who heals fully and completely and wholly someone who was suffering for years with leprosy and had portions of their body missing as a result. Here's the man who can say to the one the paralytic on the bed stand up and walk. And instantaneously the man does so. Here is someone with authority. And so they look to Jesus in this moment hoping that he's the one who can finally bring political freedom, who can finally provide the promises that have been given to them. And unlike those who came before, Jesus does these miracles in full sight of people. Not only is he articulate and engaging and insightful and a miracle worker, but he begins this sermon with a declaration that he is ushering in the kingdom of God. Imagine their excitement. But all throughout that sermon, Jesus is always saying, I am the king, but not like you imagined. I bring a kingdom, but not a kingdom of this world. See, they were expecting a political revolution, and Jesus comes along saying, I'm going to bring the kingdom of God. 
And no doubt, as people began to understand that maybe Jesus wasn't the political revolutionary that they thought he was, no doubt some of them walked away disappointed, but what they didn't understand is the same thing that so often we do not understand. That the kingdom of God is more radical and wide-ranging than we can possibly imagine. That Jesus in this moment is declaring that the problem goes deeper than the political. That he declares to us today that the problem goes deeper than just the cultural. That the reason that this world in so many aspects is so miserable is because reality itself is broken. But the shalom the creation, the perfect fabric of unity was torn. That sin entered the world like a cancer, destroying everything it touched. And what Jesus is saying is, what my kingdom brings is a revolution of the power of God that restores and redeems everything that is broken. So Isaiah foretells of it this way in chapter 11. He says, in that day when the Messiah comes, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What does he attribute all this peace to? That you've got lions and lambs and bears and oxen all together. That you've got little children spending time with what we consider to be these dangerous, terrifying animals. What does he contribute all of this to? He says, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. That the gospel inherently ushers in the kingdom of God the radical transformation of what's broken. This is the same promise of restoration that Jesus himself delivers It's the same promise that he he makes when he's describing a world where there is no sadness and there is no pain and there is no conflict. Where there is no poverty and there is no injustice and there is no sickness and no death. And that the kingdom of God is not primarily a place or a location but an entirely new organization of reality. Everything fundamentally shifts. And Jesus says, it's not just your political structures or your organizations that are broken. It's reality itself. But when my kingdom is fully realized, everything will be healed and transformed. So the question then becomes, how does this Prince of Peace bring about this revolution? And we find in the New Testament that it begins internally. Because here's what Paul writes to Titus. In Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, here's what he says, and I want you to hear these words because these next two portions are going to be very impactful for our understanding of peace and how it's brought about. Here's what he says. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You understand what Paul is saying here? He says, look, if you want to understand the sort of revolution that Christ is going to bring about, all you need to do is look at your own heart when you experience salvation. Because in that moment, in the moment where the Holy Spirit is poured out on you, where he transforms and reveals and changes everything about your soul, where he brings you from death to life, where he brings you from darkness into light, he's saying what's happening in that moment is a work of regeneration, rebirth, That everything old has become new. That everything broken has not just been fixed, it's been completely remade. And it speaks in this moment to the necessity of an external grace. That we could not do it on our own. And that's why Paul starts by saying, he saved us not because of our works of righteousness, but according to his own mercy. What's the active agent in God's salvific work in our life? It is his grace that pursues. It is his spirit that is sent. It is his love that is the motivator. And here's why all of this is so important. The word that's translated regenerate or regeneration in our English Bibles, the word that's translated rebirth, is the Greek word palingenesia. Palingenesia is a a word and its roots are are vital to us. Palin is where we get our word paleo. It just literally means old. And genesia, it's where we get our word genesis. It means, means birth. It's the idea that what is old has become new, that there is a new Genesis. And the only other place that we find that word in the whole of the Bible is in Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, where Jesus talks about the renewal of the world. And here's what Jesus says in that passage. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world, palingenesia, the son of man will sit on his glorious throne And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children's or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus says, in the new world, in the palingenesia, Jesus is saying, someday I'll return and I'll restore everything in this world. That everything that exists in creation will experience restoration. That everything that is broken will be made right. That there will be no more wars and no more conflict and no more pain and no more violence and no more suffering and no more illness. No more temptation or addiction or sickness or sadness. Now imagine for a moment the sort of power that it takes to restore everything. And it is literally the power that could only belong to the creator. That only God himself could bring about this sort of change. And if you make the connection between what Jesus says in Matthew 19 and what Paul says in Titus 3, ultimately what he's saying is that the very same power that is so impactful and so far-reaching that it's going to transform the entire world is the exact same power that comes on your life when Jesus enters it. 
the work that Jesus Christ begins in your heart and your soul in salvation is the very same work that he's going to bring on everything. Do you see the picture that's being painted for us? The same power that God used to heal the world of its brokenness, to lift the earth from its fallenness, to return order to the chaos, is the same power that we experience when we are born again. And if the same power that will change the universe is poured out into your life when you are saved, then imagine the change that it brings in you. That the same universe-altering, eternity-impacting rebirth is brought into our lives now in Christ. So how does that play into peace? How does that enable us to live in this life with the difficulty and the pain of what we face? And I think, again, we can look to Paul for an example. Because this power, the power of palingenesia, rebirth, renewal, is what enabled Paul to say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, what happened in Paul's life is a complete reordering of what was important and vital to him. That everything in his life had been shifted. That this man who once pursued power and influence and control within his religious community now says, even in the face of death, I cannot be threatened because if I'm living, my life is all about Christ and if I die, I just get more Christ. It's a completely new economy. A completely new mindset. A completely new position of the heart. See, the peace that will renew the whole world, that will reweave the fabric of shalom, is the same peace that Christ brings into the lives of those who knew him. And so as we face heartache and brokenness, brokenness that we cannot and will not understand in this life, our minds can only go to the one who is the Prince of Peace. The very same God of whom we're told in the book of Genesis when Abraham is in the middle of questioning whether or not he can trust God and in that moment responds by saying, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Won't God, who's eventually going to recreate and renew and rebirth everything, won't he also do right here and now in the midst of brokenness that I do not understand. C.S. Lewis, in one of his diatribes on this topic said, the idea is not that once we reach eternity we will be rewarded for the difficulty and pain in our life. Rather the idea is when we reach eternity everything that is broken in this life 
will be undone. Do we believe in that sort of renewal? And the only way that we can is when we see the kingdom that he's beginning to establish. When we see the progression of what we've studied the last four weeks, that first of all, we've been given a counselor who is wise, a wonderful counselor, literally a counselor who performs miracles, who has a perfect plan that will be perfectly executed. And why will it be perfectly executed? Because he is the mighty God. Because there is nothing outside of his control and nothing outside of his influence, that there is nothing that can stand in his way. But how do we know that we can trust him? Because he's the everlasting father. Because as we talked about last week, he became our new father. He brought new life. He cares for us with a father's love. And what will he bring about? Peace. Perfect shalom. And what's the means by which he does this? We find it in Isaiah 53. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We can trust him because Jesus Christ came. because he experienced the brokenness of humanity personally. Because he felt the pain of sin and experienced its consequences. Because he witnessed firsthand the brutality of humanity and did all of that to bring about restoration. And the healing peace that we find in Christ is that he bore our transgressions that he brought us first vertical peace, what we sang about this morning, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinner reconciled. And in Ephesians chapter two, verses 14 through 16, which you can read on your own, what we see is that in Jesus Christ, we have horizontal peace, brother to brother, that the church in many ways is a shadow or reflection, the beginning of, of what that kingdom of God is going to perfectly look like. So how do we live in the midst of darkness? We look to see the light. Do we see that Jesus, who is the king, is the same one who was promised, that he was born, that he would die, and that he would rise again? Or are we living by the hope and the expectation of this world, a hope that is defined by what we can control and therefore a hope that will always fall short and leave us empty? Or that we would be a people as a body of Christ, wrestling with these notions, maybe not even fully believing them at this point, but realizing that at Christmas we were given the light, that Christmas is for those who are guilty and hurting. That Christmas is for those who are stressed. That Christmas is for those who are broken. That Christmas is for those who are suffering. And that through all of that, we have a perfect picture of the Prince of Peace.
Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. God, I realize the temptation of many hearts in this room, which is to cry out first to themselves and secondarily to you, but you don't know what we've experienced. You don't know my brokenness. You don't know my pain. You don't know my suffering. And in that moment, we thank you for the faithful reminder that in Jesus Christ, we have the perfect priest who experienced the brokenness and the brutality of humanity. That we have a perfect father who knows what it's like to lose a son, who knows what it's like to be rejected. And God, we thank you that in your gracious sovereignty, before time began, you began a way and a means of rescue. God, I pray that we would be a people marked by peace, not by naivety, not by fatalism, but a peace that comes from knowing the one who is the faithful and righteous and good judge of all the earth that we can trust you even with the things we don't understand and continue to learn and grow from the one who is the wonderful counselor to put our lives in the hands of the mighty God and the everlasting Father. So we pray that you would apply to our own hearts in this morning the truth of what it is that you'd have us to know, to help us to know you in a renewed way this morning. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.